If you have a Bible, let's turn to um, Isaiah, prophet Isaiah chapter 9. You're not sure where Isaiah is. If you go to the Old Testament, find Psalms, which is right in the middle of the Old Testament. Go to the right, and you will run into to Isaiah. So today we begin a brand new series called The Gift of Christmas, and we're going to be running this series throughout the entire month, and uh, it's consisting of five messages, and one of those which will be on our Christmas Eve Eve service. Now, I don't know about you, but as, as children... Um, or at least myself as a child, what was at the heart of Christmas for me? Presents. That's right. So you know what it was like when you were a child and you went to bed at night. I don't know if you celebrated, you know, getting gifts on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day for us. For me, it was both because my parents were divorced. My dad would come and so we'd have Christmas with my dad on Christmas Eve at my grandparents' house. Then we'd have Christmas on Christmas Day with my um, at my, with my mom, and so it was the best of both worlds as a child growing up, right? You get presents on both times. So um, at the heart of Christmas for me, was, it was all about presents. It was all about materialism, right? This is, this is it. I mean, you, 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 I mean, the day before, the night before, even after having presents at my grandparents' house with my dad, I mean, it was hard to sleep at night, and you get your parents up at the crack of dawn and say, hey, is it time to get up? Yeah, it's time. You know, you're, you're running, you're plowing, plowing through your presents, you're unwrapping them, socks, pimp, nah, underwear, pfft, nah. I mean, you're, you're, you're looking for the good stuff, right? So that's just the heart of Christmas for children uh, because that's just the way we are, right? We love the, we love the gifts and, the, and the receiving of gifts, the giving of gifts later on when you become an adult. What is at the heart of Christmas for the believer? The heart of the Christmas story for the believer is the gift that God gave to us through his son, Jesus Christ. But this was not an ordinary gift. It was a very unique gift. This gift wasn't uh, something material. It was a person. And that person was Jesus. And when Jesus came into the world, he wasn't just an ordinary baby. They, they were not ordinary circumstances. I mean, I know we look at manger scenes and it looks so formal and so sterile and uh, you know, everything was just in its place at the right moment in time, but it, it just didn't quite unfold that way. And 700 years prior to Jesus's entrance into this world, there was a man named Isaiah, a prophet of God who talked about this coming gift, this coming Messiah, this coming present for the world. And so here's what he said in Isaiah 7:14. He says, see, the virgin will conceive and have a son. And this is going to be a sign to you. And so, again, this is 700 years God has been preparing down through the centuries for the arrival of this gift because it was going to be a sign. A sign of what? It was going to be a sign to the world that God is involved, God is engaged, God does care. Uh, irrespective of what the agnostic might say, that God just created and he just steps back and watches it all unfold. No, God is very personal, very intimate, very involved, and he wants the world to know that. And so Isaiah 9, 6, uh, here's how it starts out where Isaiah is prophesying this coming child. For uh, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establish, 
establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So I want you to notice a couple of things. It says, for unto us a child is born, but unto us a son is given. Why the distinction? Well, here's the distinction. Uh, The son is given. He's not born. Why? Because the son is in reference to Jesus who existed prior to his coming to planet earth, right? So John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of God's glory, right? So here's Jesus. So it's the son that God gave through Jesus, right? God is giving this gift to the world, and that gift will come through the birth canal, right? It'll come through natural birth on the human side of things. And so... uh, This born, this birth, is that the God the Father gave the Son to us through a supernatural conception of human flesh through Mary, who was a virgin, yet the Holy Spirit endowed her with this child that would be born into the world. It is the Son of God who was given by the Father for the needs of humanity. And so the Apostle Paul brought all of this together in Galatians 4.4 when he says, when the fullness of time came, God sent for his sent for his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and not by Joseph in order that his human nature might be sinless, which is why he's called the son of God at his birth. So Jesus's divinity, existence prior to entrance into the world and his humanity come together. God's deity clothes itself in humanity. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. Jesus was fully God and fully human. Becoming human did not diminish his godness. Becoming human did not, you know, becoming, coming as God did not diminish his humanness. And so Uh, Jesus was 100% God. Nothing ever happened that took that away from him. That's why we read that, that, you know, in Colossians that everything that has been created has been created by Christ. It was created for his, 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 his joy and his honor and his glory. And God never becomes weary. God never needs to sleep. But yet in Christ's humanity, we see where Jesus would become tired. He would become hungry. He would weep over the, the tomb of Lazarus, that he would weep over Jerusalem because of his his um, empathy, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And so we see both the divine and the human side of Jesus colliding. And he was God's gift. And there's a reason why he is God's gift. And the people to whom Isaiah made this prophecy were in a period of time. Now, when this prophecy was made, it's like most prophecies, there's a dual side to it. It is an answer to a situation that is at hand, and it's an answer to a situation in the future. At hand for Isaiah in this moment in time, at the nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms. To the north, you have Israel, 10 tribes. To the south, Judah, two tribes. The Assyrians have mounted up. They've come in you know, in um, an alliance with Egypt and they're coming, they're bearing down upon Israel and they're trying to make this alliance with the king and Judah, Ahaz. And, and so um, this, this is the situation. It is, a, it is what Isaiah called a, a time where people were walking in absolute darkness. 
And it was a time of national crisis. Economically, they had been de devastated. They're facing this invasion. The nation is under threat. There's the uncertainty about their future. There's fear about their safety. There, there is unrest about what might happen. There's a feeling of aloneness. There is this great feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. They realize that, listen, there are some things so very wrong in our nation, but we don't have the capability to put it back together again. It's like Humpty Dumpty on the wall. It had a great fall. All the king's horsemen and all the king's men could not put Humpty back together again. And this is the nation that Isaiah is prophesying to. And very much like over the past two years, what we have been through as a nation, what's happening in our nation now, I mean, there's a great deal of uncertainty to feel the ground shifting beneath us, to the state of our own medical system and our economy, and we have discovered that lives are far more fragile than we ever expected, and I mean, maybe this Christmas you're unsure about what next year holds for you. Maybe your job is in jeopardy. Maybe um, your security is shaky. Maybe your, your marriage is crumbling. I, I don't know what all you're facing, but it might be that you need what Israel needed. You need what Judah needed. You need a wonderful counselor who's going to address those uncertain questions that you have rolling around in your spirit. This, this is also a time of the year where there's great loneliness sets into people's hearts and depression gets accelerated and um, suicide escalates during the Christmas holiday more than any other time of the year. And so people, people celebrate, we celebrate, we, we understand what is at the heart of Christmas, and, but there are a lot of people who don't understand that. In this gift of Christmas, the names of Jesus are chosen very, very carefully in this passage because they are descriptive of who he is going to be. They are descriptive of what he is bringing to the table in the world in which we live. And so he says, Jesus is this wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. And in regards to being a wonderful counselor at another junction, Isaiah 11:2, he says, uh, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. At the first advent, the first coming, the first arrival of Jesus into the world was to bring, was to bring relief from our sins. Jesus says there will be a second advent, a second coming in the future that will bring us relief from our suffering. But in the here and now is that Jesus is here in his presence is here to help us with our everyday struggles, which bears out the name, the Wonderful Counselor. So what does that name mean? I've put this on your outline. It comes from a Hebrew word. Now, Hebrew, uh, original Hebrew does not have um, vowels in it. It's a very guttural kind of language with consonants only. And so it's peli yats. And so it means to be beyond understanding, someone who is magnificent. In other words, this wonderful counselor that we have through Jesus, he's so wonderful that you can't even begin to describe how wonderful, how magnificent he is because there's just not enough words to make the description. And he is the counselor. He is the one who um, 
advises us. He is the one who instructs us. He is the one who guides us. Now, this isn't like, uh, you know, like any old therapist because he is operating from a position of authority. Remember, uh, he didn't have his beginning in Jerusalem. He has always existed. He's the eternal God who sat on a throne, who all came off the throne into the realm of humanity and is now back seated upon his throne. He is ushering in his kingdom, the rule and the reign of God over the hearts and the lives of his kingdom people. And one day he'll usher his physical kingdom here upon this earth. It's what the Bible calls the bringing together of heaven and earth. If you were to look up that phrase uh, and Google that, or, or, or look it up through the Logos system, heaven and earth is that you would find 200 times the Bible uses the term heaven and earth, but if you look at heaven and hell, zero, zip, nada. It's not that there's not a hell, but here's our concept of hell. The hell is at the center of the earth and, you know, down in the molten center. Like if I drill through there, am I going to run into it? No, that's not where it is. Heaven and earth, we think that life is all about God getting us saved. We go, die, go to heaven out there somewhere, and we'll, we will remain out there somewhere for eternity. No, that's just until Jesus comes back in his second advent, sets up his millennial kingdom, destroys the present heaven and earth, re renovates it, brings the new Jerusalem. It is heaven. Heaven is going to be here on earth, which is where we will reside, which was why 200 times it's all about God reconciling heaven back to earth as it was originally intended to be. This is the counselor that we have through Jesus. And here's the, the uniqueness about him. He has the experience to understand our present situation. He has the wisdom to know what the solution is, and he has the power to bring it about. What a counselor. Now, I know that sometimes we, we have friends that, you know, we, we get in a, a situation, we call somebody up, and we tell them our situation, and, and, and they will say things like, oh, I'm I'm so sorry. I, I wish you didn't have to go through that. I can empathize. I kind of went through something similar. That's not the kind of counselor we got. Now, he'll be all those things for you, but he goes far, far beyond. All right, so he's not like any therapist that you've ever been to. He can go much, much deeper. I'm not against therapists. I'm not against counselors. I think they're wonderful things. God has gifted many people for those avenues, and God bless them because they are, they are used by the Spirit of God. I'm simply saying that there are some times when you need to come to your wonderful counselor, Jesus, because he can, only he can do for you what may need to be done at that moment in your time. And so Isaiah wasn't just saying that Jesus is a great listener, though he was, or that he knew exactly what questions to ask, although though he did, he is saying that, and man, this is a counselor who has walked your path. He's walked in your pain. He's walked in your loneliness. He's walked in your temptation. He's walked in your problems. And so he, Jesus came for people with problems, but he had the power to do something about them. Every single miracle that Jesus ever performed came about because somebody had a problem. You had a physical problem, you had an emotional problem, you had um, a hunger problem, you had an exclusion problem, and each time Jesus entered into that problem, he transformed it. 
So here's the truth for today, and it's this, is that you will never reach your full potential. And that's the key, full potential. You might reach some potential, but you're not going to reach your full potential in life without tapping into the wisdom of your wonderful counselor. So what kind of counselor is he? What makes him so wonderful? Well, first of all, is that, again, he understands your struggles. He understands your struggles. So why don't you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and I'll get there in just a moment. And that, listen, when Jesus was born in the world, what was he born into? Poverty. He was born into poverty because at that, at that time and juncture under the Roman rule, the Jews were extremely oppressed. Most of them lived in poverty unless they were like working for the Roman government, uh, you know, like Matthew was, one of Jesus' disciples, he was a tax collector. And so, you know, he made a lot of money and revenue off the Jewish people. But by and large, they were poor. And, and so um, he's, he's born a Jew. He's, he's born in the period of great oppression. And that's why most people in Jesus' day missed his birth. They were expecting the coming of a king. Kings are born in palaces. They're not born in stables. Kings are wrapped in the fine purple linen, not in grave clothes like Jesus was wrapped in and placed into a feeding trough. And so for many people, they missed their Messiah because they, he did not meet up to their expectations, which had been taught to them by the scribes and Pharisees all of their lives, that Jesus will be a, a kingly Messiah like David. He's going to come in and he's going to overthrow Rome and he's going to set up his this is kingdom, and it's going to rule and reign, and it's going to be like the golden era of David, and it's going to be a wonderful thing. And the fact that Jesus was born in an animal shelter was no more common in the first century than it is in the 21st century. Right? There was nothing sentimental about that night. No woman wants to give birth to her baby amid smelly cows and the stench of dung. Right? I thought about, I, I seriously thought about buying some of that. You can get like um, mulch that has mixed with manure and like putting it in buckets and just strategically putting them around the auditorium so you could get the, the gist of what it smelled like for Mary and Joseph that night. This was not, no, there was no cinnamon and nutmeg smell, no sipping on hot chocolate here with marshmallows, none of that going on. It was a very, very difficult time. And then on top of that, Mary only has one person with her to help her, her husband. Oh my word. Is a man helpful in birth, childbirth? No. Our poor wives are pushing their guts out, and we're like sweating, like we're, we're working at this thing. Or, you know, you see things, and you're like, oh, I think I'm feeling faint. <laughs> People don't have babies in barns back then for the same reason we don't have them today. Barns are dirty, they're smelly, and they don't come with midwives. And for most of his life, Jesus would be considered... As the, by most, as this illegitimate son of a carpenter and a teenage bride. And he would grow up in Galilee. Now, Galilee, Israel split into three regions. You have Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Galilee for the Jews. Now, the Samaritans, they, the Jews considered them the lowest of the low. But if you were a, a, a Jew, you want to be in Judea, you don't want to be in Galilee. Galilee was like the, the bottom rung of the social ladder. 
I remember what was said of Jesus, can anything good come out of Galilee? And so this is where he is, he is raised, and he would spend his whole life in poverty. And for three years during his ministry, effectively, he was homeless, couch surfing, uh, because he says, I, I, I think I know where to lay my head. And from time to time, he would go to different points, and like Capernaum, where he'd have a place where he could you know, couch surf there, and then off to somewhere else. And when he died, he died with no friends, and no possessions, and no reputation. Jesus, I mean, by and large, he was a PR agency's nightmare. How do you make something out of that? And yet, he's one of the greatest well-known uh, names and individuals known to humanity. We split our time, B.C., A.D., by his, his, his birth. And yet in his weakness. This is why he is so life-changing. Look in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are also being tempted. And then go to chapter um, 4 in Verse 15, we, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are and yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So here's what I know about Jesus. Every time I come to that throne of grace, I'm not coming to a Savior who's just like from the portals of heaven, you know, uh, reached down to earth in different ways and said, oh, you know, I empathize, I sympathize what's happening down there. No, I've got a Savior who walked my shoes, who suffered as I suffer, who was tempted as I am tempted, who went through some incredibly horrible things. I mean, his own family at one time had an intervention for him because they thought he was nutty because he's claiming to be Messiah and they wanted to have him packed off in the, in the crazy house. How would you like your entire family to reject you for years? How would you like to have humanity reject you? One minute they're yelling that he is Messiah and the next minute they're yelling crucify him. And so we, we come to this Savior who, who knows what it's like to be us. And I don't know about you, but when I'm going through a very difficult situation, sometimes you need someone who can say, I really understand, and the reason I understand is because I've been there and I have done that. He is, he is the wonderful counselor. He is the one who understands your struggle. He cares about you. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares about you, right? Jesus didn't come for people who had it all together. Jesus came for people who have problems. He came for the dysfunctional. And some of us put unction in the word dysfunction. Let's be, let's be honest here, right? We're messed up. And so he came for those who had been mistreated, who had been neglected, who had been abused, and he came for those who had gotten everything 
uh, you know, had not gotten everything they wanted out of life and they were still lacking and they needed this unique counselor who could bring the experience into the situation that needed to be there, who could have the wisdom to see what is the solution to this and had the power to bring it about. This is our wonderful counselor and he also is committed to us. Hebrews 13.5 says, listen, I, Jesus says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I don't care how far off track you get. I will always pursue you. So every encounter that Jesus had, when people were get far from God, listen, they may not want him pursuing them, but he pursued them anyways and had interactions. And, and, and in those encounters that he had with people, their lives were by and large changed, but not everyone, not everyone who Jesus had encounters with thought he was all that in bag of chips. Many of them walked away. They didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't care about what he, have come, he has come to do. They did not acknowledge him as Messiah. So since this wonderful counselor understands your struggles and cares about you and is absolutely committed to you, how do you get the most out of your counseling sessions with him? And really, that's the rub. And let me spend the next 15 minutes kind of unpacking that. Number one is when you come to your counselor... You have to be brutally honest with him. You see, it's not our natural human tendency to do that. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They immediately covered themselves up. They hid themselves from God, and we still do the same thing as human beings. We wear masks, we cover up, we hide, we shield, we put up personas, we try to look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being strong, I'm being, I got to be strong for the family, but inside you're a wreck. And so it is incumbent upon our healing to be brutally honest if we want to receive the healing of our soul, which is a part of what Jesus came. It's the essence of the gospel. It's not just to forgive sin, but also to bring healing in our ravaged souls where, where we are hurting. And, and, and so... And the reason why we know we're hurting is because there's brokenness there. And that brokenness, we, we, we attach coping mechanisms to our brokenness. And, but the reason we can't get healed of our brokenness or we can't detach from our coping mechanisms is because we've never really got to the root of cause of that brokenness. And that's the essence of the gospel. And what Paul's going to talk about in Romans 5 through not, 5 through 8 is, listen, we got to get to the root cause of the brokenness, but that will take some brutal honesty on your part. And so you're only as sick as your secrets. And every counselor will tell you that until you're completely and brutally honest with your problems, you can't really, you can't really help somebody. We conceal things, but you cannot heal what you keep concealed. You, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to be honest with the Lord. You may have to be honest with a, an actual counselor. And maybe, you know, well, but I feel shame. And I, I feel this. And I feel guilt. And I understand all that. But listen, the healing of the soul is not like, uh, it's not like me walking up to some teenage kid and say, throwing in my car keys and say, hey, could you go wash my car, clean it up inside out? I'll be back in about an hour. Can you have it done by then? Yeah. And so, you, do, you know, he does. He cleans it up, come back, and it's all, it's all done, right? This is the way we want God to do with us, right? We, we just want to say, okay, Lord, I, I've received Jesus into my life, and, and, and I'm committed to be a follower of his. And now, Lord, you know, just like bathe me, like, you know, just cleanse every 
problem and, and everything I'm dealing with on the inside, just clean it up, get rid of it, you know, sprinkle me with pixie dust or whatever you got to do, just rid me of it. Doesn't happen that way. You know, the same problems you had before you got saved, the same problems you have after you got saved. The question is, what are you going to do with that? And so this is where the beauty of our, 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 our um, wonderful counselor here is. And when God changes your life, you have, to make, you have to be active in the details. You have to be honest. It's, it's rarely a quick fix, but it can be fixed. And so, you know, you got to be honest about your marriage. You got to be honest about your addictions, you got to be honest about maybe the unforgiveness you're harboring in your heart that's just absolutely eating you alive like an active cancer in your emotional system. Here's my point is this, is God is not going to change your life without changing you, without changing me. As I said before, you're not the solution. You're part of the problem. God's your solution. Your wonderful counselor is your solution. But he wants to change you before he can change the circumstances. And so we see this in um, brutal honesty and the changing of life in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, right? Where most of us are familiar with the story. Jesus is traveling and he's in sidecar and, uh, you know, there's, he's thirsty. His disciples have gone to get something to eat. He's sitting at a well. There's a woman out there gathering water at noon, which is highly unusual. Usually that was done in the, in the morning. So Jesus asks her for a drink of water. He engages her in a conversation. And what he wants to do ultimately is to get her to be brutally honest about herself. And so they engage in a conversation. And then Jesus says to her, hey, go tell this to your husband. And and she's like, I have no husband. And he says, you're right. In fact, you've had five, and the one you're living with now is not even your husband. And so Jesus knew something about this woman. He knew that she had been spending her entire life, relationship after relationship after relationship, trying to find fulfillment, trying to find value, trying to find worth, trying to find satisfaction and fulfillment. And every time it was like drinking from a broken cistern. It just didn't work. And it cycled into another relationship and into another relationship. And Jesus wanted to bring hope and healing into her life. But before he could do that, he had to get her to be brutally honest about what it was she was looking for. And so he offers her living water. Like, if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. Well, where is this water? I, I, I want this water. And he says, I'm it. I am the living water. And so in that encounter with Christ, she finds hope and healing so much so that she runs back to her town and tells everybody about what Jesus has done for her. And many come out and find out, I mean, this guy spoke about things. How did he know this? And she brings that. And they, many people give their life to Christ because of her witness and her testimony about how her wonderful counselor had absolutely transformed her heart and her life. Here's the second thing. You've got to be brutally honest, and you really have to want to be healed. Now, in John chapter 5, there's a very interesting story in, in Bethesda, and here's a guy that's he's 30, he's, for 38 years, he's been an invalid. He's laying beside this pool, and the pool of Bethesda, it was believed that every, once a year, the angels would come down and trouble the water. First one in gets healed. 
right? So you, as you can imagine, people would surround that place trying to be the first one in to receive the healing that would come once a year. And so this guy has been there 38 years. He's been an invalid. And Jesus comes up and walks up to him and kind of singles him out of all the people that are laying there who are there looking for healing. He singles this guy out and he asks him a question. Do you want to be healed? Duh. Have you looked at me? Uh, why would Jesus ask that question? See, I, I think it's a very odd question, but Jesus was a master at using questions and bringing out of people the root causes of their problems and what it is he's trying to do in their life. Who wouldn't want to be healed? But here's Jesus getting at, while many people want to experience the benefits of healing, they do not want to go through the painful choices that must be made to accompany their healing. In other words, I don't know of many people who don't want to be healed physically, but when it gets healed emotionally and spiritually, all of a sudden we shut down, right? Because it's not a question of God just going, zap, you're better. It is a question of you doing the hard work on your part, but people just don't want to put forth the effort. We just want to pray a prayer up to God and ask him to heal it, and it just automatically gets healed. But the, the, the problem with that is you want God to clean up the mess of your life without dealing with the choices and the patterns of your life that got you in that mess in the first place. That's what he wants to attack. He, he wants to, to root up. That's what he wants to attack because those, listen, if God just like, you know, made you feel better about yourself, but never tapped into the root cause that you're making choices that are leading you to these messes, same mess over and over again, then you're just going to get right back into the same situation because you're trying to deal with a coping mechanism. God wants to deal with the root problem. And the longer that problem exists in your life, the more discouraged you become. Some of you have an ongoing problem that won't go away, and you've prayed about it for a while, and you prayed, and nothing happened, and you tried several things, and nothing changed. I mean, it's just like this guy. Uh, he's been struggling with this problem for 38 years. He's been praying, God, I, I, I need to get in that pool. I, everybody beats me there. I, I need to get in there. You think he's a little discouraged after 38 years of praying for something? I do. I would be. Most of us get discouraged within 15 minutes, let alone 38 years. When I prayed for my mother's salvation for 20-some years, do I get discouraged? Yeah, I did. I kept thinking, well, is, is, it, is it any use? Should I keep, continue to do this? Is, is it ever going to happen? And so this is the way this guy was. And the longer problems exist in our lives, the more excuses we tend to make. We, we make excuses because we believe that ultimately... We will feel better if we can just blame somebody else for our problems. If I play victim, I'm not responsible. Everybody around me is responsible for my problems. And therefore, if I can get the Lord to change them, then I'll be okay. Whoo, this happens in marriage. Lord, if you just change my wife, if you just get her act together, Lord, it'll all be. 
How many people have I counseled, couples have I counseled, and the husband says, no, no, pastor, if you could just get my wife on the right track, and the wife is, if you could just get this idiot husband of mine on the right track, we might be able to make it here. It it might all work out. It might be well. And so we're blaming, and we're, we're, we're playing the victim, and we're excusing, and we feel helpless, and we feel hopeless, and uh, this is... This is what this guy was, right? He said, when Jesus said, hey, you want to be? He said, well, Lord, I don't have anybody to help me in the water. I, 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 I'm, I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. I got no way to change this. And Jesus was like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to change this. I got a way. And the longer your problem exists, the more you learn to compensate, right? There are people who are, who are highly functioning alcoholics, Their marriage is a wreck. Their families are a wreck. There's deterioration between them and their children, but they're highly successful in the business place. And they can function even as an alcoholic in the business world. Sometimes we have, you know, deep rifts in our our marriages, and we just learn how to exist in a very dead marriage. We've learned how to compensate, and we we stay together for the sake of the children or or for whatever reason. You know, I I don't want to be alone. And um, so there are all kinds of ways that we can learn to compensate our problem. But here's the problem is you cannot change until you recognize the problem. You will never change when you are tolerating an issue. You cannot change what you're willing to tolerate, what you're excused and what you are compensating for. So the reason Jesus asked this man the question is this. Because Jesus knew you cannot help someone who just needs help. You can only help a person who wants help. Do you catch the distinguishing thing here? You see, if you, if you try to help somebody who doesn't want it, you will wear yourself out. They will take you down with them. Because if they, as long as they don't really want the help, nothing is ever going to change. I don't care what they say to you. Even somebody who is an addict, they, they don't really experience um, release from that or um, you know, being set free from that until they move from, yeah, I know I need help, to I really want the help, and I'm willing to put forth the work and the effort to do whatever I need to do to make sure I experience my you know, escape from this addiction that is in my life. Now, those of you have, who are parents who have addicts as children, you understand this very well that, um, man, it is draining. Because oftentimes we try to carry their backpack and it's like, I'm going to do everything I can to get them help. And you do, and it's draining, it's exhausting emotionally and physically and spiritually and uh, financially. But if they don't want the help, nothing changes. You know, Augustine in his confessions described himself as praying God make me pure yet not right now right not yet do you really want God to change your life are you willing to go through that process so here's number three if that's what you want here's what God says you must listen to the counselor's voice Now, God speaks in many ways, right? He speaks through other people. He speaks primarily from his spirit to your spirit, through his word. So I'm going to give you this acrostic listen. I'm just going to spell it out for you because I'm almost out of time. So 
Here's how you use God's word. Here's how you allow your wonderful counselor to use the word of God in conjunction with the spirit of God to speak into your life. All right, so the L stands for you look at a passage from God's word. It, it, this is why it's so important that you be in God's word. Now, when I say look at a passage, I don't mean that you have to get up next tomorrow morning and read the entire book of the Bible. You don't have to read an entire chapter. It might just be a portion of scripture, but you, you need to systematically read through God's word. Now, you can bounce back between the old and new or just do the new for now or whatever you want to do. I'm just saying you, you need to look at a passage from God's word and ask God to open your eyes to see him and to open your ears to hear him. What does he want to say to you through this passage? I don't want you reading for information. I want you reading for transformation. There's a big difference. I'm all about reading through the Bible and all that, but a lot of times when people try to read through the Bible in a year, they just rush through, they get behind, they get frustrated, and it's just like hurry, 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 and that does you no good. I want you to be transformed, right, by your mighty, your wonderful counselor. Here's the I. I identify what stands out to you that day. Well, as you're reading, what is it that stands out to you? Be sensitive to the Spirit of God, and, and like he's pointing out something he wants you to notice, right? So don't read casually for content. Read actively looking for what God has for you. And, and if that verse stands out, it might just be a word in the verse. Highlight it, underline it, circle it. That's God saying, I have something for you today. I have something for you. And so then S stands for you study God's truth, right? You, and I want you to write down your observation. So it might be a verse. It might be two verses. It might be a word. And so you start mulling over in your mind, what are some questions I would ask? Well, is there an attitude that needs to change? Is that what this is saying to me? Is there a, a command that I need to follow? Is there a truth that I need to understand that God's saying? Is there a sin that I need to confess or avoid? Is there an example I need to follow? Is there a promise I need to claim? So you're just thinking strategically, God, what is it that you're saying to me in this verse? And then T stands for think about how that applies to your life. How's this going to apply to my life? That's called meditation, right? Psalm 119, 15 says, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. The E stands for engage with God in prayer. I want you to take what God's saying to you, and I want you to turn that into a prayer back to him. Listen, when, you, when, you're, when you're listening to your wonderful counselor, and he points something out, and you, you, you meditate on that, and all of a sudden God says, this is what I'm trying to show you, and you pray that back as a prayer of praise, that is some of the most powerful praying you'll ever do in your life. Because you're offering it back to him as a gift. Thank you, Lord, that you've shown this. Thank you, Father, that you, you've pointed this out. And then N just stands for note what God says. Uh, put it in a journal. Put it in a notebook. I'm not saying you have to be a journaler. I'm just saying when God shows you something, he teaches you something, you're praying that back, write it down. Because you want to remember it. And you want to be an encouragement to somebody else. You want to share what it is God's showing you with other people. And it might be another person who, 
who, um, you know, God uses, maybe you're studying your passage that week and, and God, you know, you're just like, God, I'm, I'm trying to get it here and, and I, I've highlighted something and then God brings somebody into your life that week and says, hey, uh, let's sit down and talk. Let me share, let me share you something with you. And they say something that like God just takes what they said and melts it together with the word of God. And it's like that aha moment. It's like, ah, okay, I get it. This is what God's telling me. That's your wonderful counselor at work. He's, he's rooting into the depth of your being to root out that which is creating your brokenness that has led to your coping mechanism. Now, you can try to get rid of the coping mechanism by sheer will all you want, but it's not going to last long until you get to the root of as to why you are doing what you're doing. And everybody has a root. You may not know what it is. But if you allow your wonderful counselor to probe, you'll find out. Here's number four. You got to be willing to, to do what the counselor says. You know, Jesus often told people to do crazy things. I, here's a guy who's born blind. Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud cakes, puts it on his eyes and says, I want you to go to this pool over here and watch. Why didn't Jesus just like click his fingers and you're healed? He could have. Or like when Peter needed some money to pay a bill, and Jesus says, hey, go out and catch this fish. Inside the fish is going to be a gold coin. Use that to pay your taxes, you know, whatever. <clears throat> Why didn't Jesus just do something really cool, like, like pull it out from behind his ear? Like, mm. Even in the Old Testament, when Naaman, who was a, uh, needed healing because of his leprosy, he was, he was a Gentile, he wasn't a Jew, and and his servant says, I know a man who can help you. And so he sent to the prophet of God. And Elijah says, hey, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman says, ain't no way I'm doing that. No, our rivers are far superior than, the, than Israel's rivers. And Elijah's like, okay, we'll do whatever. And so then one of the, you know, the servants comes back and says, well, Lord, I mean, if they told you to do this and this, would you not do it? So he did. He goes to the Jordan River, and guess what? On the seventh time he came up, his leprosy is gone. Now, you and I can be like Naaman and be hard-headed and hard-hearted and miss out on our healing. Or we can do what the counselor says, and this is what it requires, a heart of Surrender. An absolute heart of surrender. Now, this is hard for us because this is not the way we operate in other areas. You know, the rich young ruler, and I'll close with this, came to Jesus seeking the way of salvation, and Jesus said something that sounded very crazy to him. Hey, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, come follow me. He said, I'm not doing it. Why? Refused to surrender everything over. But here's the interesting part about that story. In that passage, it says, Jesus loved him. Jesus wanted him to come. Jesus provided the way to come, but he refused to surrender his heart fully. I'm just here to say you have a wonderful counselor who loves you. He cares about you. He's committed to you. He understands, and he wants to bring about the healing you need. But you have to come with a heart that is absolutely surrendered totally to him and do what it is he tells you to do. Let's pray together.
You know, Jesus doesn't always immediately take away our problems, but he does reward us, reward us with his wonderful promise, and here's his promise to you, my friend. You know what's better than Jesus' healing? It's his presence. Like, Jesus wants to bring both, but he wants his presence in your life as Savior and Lord of your life. And if you're here this morning, you've never opened up your heart to Jesus to be the Savior and the Lord of your life, I'm telling you, he's knocking on your door, your heart right now. And if you ask God to put your spiritual ears on you, you're going to hear that. You're going to sense it in your, in your spirit that God wants relationship with you. This is why we talk about real relationships reaching a real relationship with Christ, not one that's phony, not one that's superficial, but one where your heart is absolutely surrendered over to the Lordship of Jesus. He wants to be Savior and Lord. He wants to be the forgiver of your sin. He wants to be the healer of your heart. He wants to be the transformer of your life. And it's a process and one that we'll spend our entire lives as he gets one area cleaned up, we go to the next area, another area. Listen, do not get frustrated. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. But you have to start somewhere. You've got to be brutally honest with what's happening in your life. You need to desire that healing and listen to your counselor be ready to do what it is he says however crazy it might seem to you Jesus is for you he's not against you and that's what I love about Christmas because Christmas is God's gift to us through the person of Jesus Christ our wonderful counselor and I want him to be your wonderful counselor and so does the Lord so Father I thank you for every person here today we, we just worship you and honor you I pray for those who need to receive Christ into their life. I pray that they'll bow their hearts before you today and they will pray out, call out to you and, and just ask Jesus to become Savior and Lord of their life. They'll put their hope, their trust and faith in him and him alone as the one who came to the world to die for their sins, die in their place so that he might forgive he might cleanse. He might make whole. He might clothe them with your righteousness so that they are now in a right and acceptable relationship with you because of that transfer of trust from themselves to, to Christ and that they will surrender their hearts to his lordship to allow him to be the CEO of their life, to bring about healing and hope where there is hopelessness and where there is, there is hurt and there's pain. Thank you for your... Father, for our wonderful counselor, in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand. We're going to